The Creative Trust is a limited podcast series to celebrate 20 years of Gloss Creative. Together with our stellar alumni, we'll share everything we know to be true about the creative process and the business reality of running a small but powerful design platform. Two decades ago, I started Gloss Creative as my creative platform for experimentation and exploration. What has ensued has been an endlessly rewarding creation of ephemeral installations, each one put up, pulled down, each one leaving an enduring mark on its audience. I learned early on that I could make audiences fall in love with environments simply by making them feel and experience something. Memories that lasted long after the physical immersion had gone. It crystallised my long-held belief that your business plan is to harness your unbridled creative force and that creative renewal is your most powerful weapon over time. Welcome to the Creative Trust. Today, I'm with two amazing stylists. I'm here with Stuart Wolford and Chris Contos. I kind of feel like uh, I've got these guys on false pretenses here a little bit because I was thinking about their styling work. But over the last few weeks, as I've, you know, found out more information about their backgrounds and what they've been doing, I feel like the word stylist is actually such an undersell for you guys. I think we might have to rename this podcast The Creative Directors because honestly, the work that both of you two have done over your careers is pretty incredible. I'm, I've got a lot of questions for you. Obviously, the subject today is styling, but I am always interested in the bigger view and I think it is about creative direction because you've both worked on so many different and varied projects and within different design genre and had under many different guises that I think we'll call it styling but I think we'll go fairly deep on everything and creative direction as well. So, hey, two in one, let's just start. So like You've really sold us up. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm just sitting here shitting myself slightly. No, <laughs> it's not. Well, when I got your bios, I'm like, oh, yeah, by the way, I forgot about that and this and that. Stuart, I met probably when you were a student at RMIT. Is that right? I think I was pretty young, yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking that you worked with us uh, casually while you are at RMIT. And I remember just, I don't know, the, the style in which you approach everything, just um, really calm, really considered, really level-headed with everything. I remember specifically we had a conversation when you were actually doing some work at Chadston one time and you were just doing some little cases and you described you were about to do this work at Como and two or three months later, I remember seeing all these incredible pictures coming down the feed. I'm like, oh, my God, you should see what Stuart's doing. Like, I don't know how you, you'll describe it better, but there was a lot of ambiguous dressing and a bit of a Gucci vibe before Gucci was a thing, you know. And I'm looking at this and I'm going, oh, my God, Stuart. Is, has just gone boom. This is the beginning of something so exciting. So it's just been such a delight to work with you and see your trajectory as it is now, you know, culminating, you know, in ISO with your ISO outfits, which I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with. So very excited to have you here today um, as a stylist. And obviously, 
Chris, I was just saying before, I'm not even sure how I know you, but <laughs> I'm sure it's something to do with Adelaide. Yeah. Well, I know. I remember. <laughs> so I followed your career for a long time and I rocked up to Chadston one time during a business meeting or a work meeting when I was working for Harris Scarf and you were doing a runway and it was the big screen runway oh, at Chadston. Yeah, yeah. I was just watching was you fun. roll and I'm like, who the hell, one, gets these budgets, but two, can create such magic and I just was watching the detail of how the rehearsal was running and how you were working. And that's when I started knowing of you. But then I realized I've known your work for a long time. So, yeah, that's yeah. how I know you. Yeah. Oh. And we've had many a beautiful pizza at Pizza yes, Tech. 100%. And lots of convos and lots of good lunches. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, reading your bio, you know, I've, I've realized how how significant your body of work is, you know, from the, from the early days in South Australia with the brands that you've grown and developed through to being the creative director of the Adelaide Fashion Festival. Pretty incredible working with the government and mentoring designers yeah. and that sort of thing. And then, you know, all of a sudden, fantastically, you're in Melbourne and you're all over my social feed. <laughs> I'm just loving, you know, uh, I don't know how you go out as much. I just think it's incredible. Constant. And then the pop culture. So I'll yeah. go out and then I'll shut down and watch every television show possible just, and that's uh, how I roll. <laughs> yeah. And, I, I mean, I love your television commentary. If yeah. I want to know what to watch, I just go into your feed <laughs> and, and find that out. So I'm really excited to have you here Thank too you to me. talk about uh, styling. So I guess... As you know, I'm obsessed with how creativity happens, especially when you're young. So, Stuart, what I want to know from you is what was your childhood like creatively or anyhow? What was it growing up like for you and how did it set you up or did it set you up or didn't it set you up for a creative life? Well, thanks for having me here. I'm very flattered um, to be here. But I think my upbringing was really there was no creativity in like my family. My, um, and my parents were, my parents, we have a family business. My dad's a cabinet maker. My mum works in finance and does the accounts. Um, and my sister was always very academic. So because of the lack of creative energy, I guess, that was not in the house, kind of made me have to find it in other places. And I think that kind of pushed me to find out who I was or who I wanted to be really quickly. So, I mean, my mum always sewed. I remember we had, she had a singer machine and she would repair clothes and, you know, she taught me how to thread a machine, how to sew a straight line. So those kind of memories, I think, is what put me into um, wanting to study fashion design in high school. And then when I learned how bad my designs were, I thought, surely there's, surely there's a career out there where perhaps I could work with the products that are already created by some other genius and then I can just turn them into a look or create an image without the pressure of having to design what that product is you know, from scratch. And my friend who took my um, year 12 um, fashion courses said, yeah, it's called a stylist. And I'd never heard of it before because back then styling wasn't, you know, now there's all these two-day courses. You can do like a crash course on becoming a stylist. Or, in two days. In, yeah, in two days. Totally. Like, Imagine what you learn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> it, it, yeah. And yeah. I have mixed feelings about, you know, that's yeah, a whole other conversation. But um, yeah, so so then... I just thought, well, that's my mind's made up. That's what I'm going to do. And but yeah. I mean, you say, you're saying that there was no creativity in your house, but the fact that your mum had a sing sewing machine says to me, there's creativity yeah. there. I think it was more from an angle of using, you know, self expression as a creativity. Like my, I never saw that in my family. Whereas I would 
paint abstract things on canvases or I would um, rip out, you know, I, I never sort of purchased Vogue's and had that cliche upbringing, but there were always magazines around. So I would rip out piece of pages and make collages. And I was always expressing my thoughts and my feelings through doing something um, in, in however form that took. And so I think that, you know, is what was missing in what I saw from my parents rather than them sort of being curators or, you know, my dad wasn't some famous painter and, you know, so. But it's interesting, like it doesn't, I mean, my parents, one was a doctor and one was a physio, you know, so it wasn't particularly creative in that sense. But I feel like if you are at all creative, you find, like you're saying, you find ways, mm. you know, like the magazines, you were doing yeah. things with or the sewing. You just start to make things yeah. and do things. I, 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 was, I found what, was, what I felt was missing and I've made sure that I could seek that out. And I think that's why to me it was so fascinating and interesting because I wasn't being fed those visuals or having those conversations at home. So did you find school? Did school give you any of that impetus to explore that? Or Well, I went to a public school locally and had a very like suburban experience growing up but I do have a very vivid memory of my year nine history teacher purchasing art that I was making at home I guess uh, she, I wouldn't say she was a mentor but it, it was the first time I felt encouraged to keep exploring that creative side of my brain I think this teacher had seen that I approached learning differently and then that was her way of encouraging me to keep going and and to develop that type of work and so mm-hmm. yeah as strange as that it's was always, it's great when that happens yeah it's a relief actually yeah and then something uh, I, you know what's really interesting i went to one turner college in the eastern suburbs and they had removed the fashion design subjects out of vce because they didn't have enough students to run the class and so I sat down with the principal and said, how many students do we need? This was in year 11. How many students do we need to run this class in year 12? Because I'm taking my education seriously. I know what I, where I think I want to go. Uh, and so this, this subject would be really crucial for me to, to take. And they said, you need 14 students. So if you want to take a petition around the schoolyard and find the students and bring them back to us with 14 signatures, then we'll run the fashion class. And I only got 13 signatures. And so I took the sheet back to the teachers and they, didn't, they wouldn't run the class. And so I went home and said to my parents, I'm leaving. I need to leave this school and I need to go somewhere where they foster the education that is going to help me after this chapter. And so I moved to Box Hill Senior Secondary College. No, Box Hill Senior. I think it was just called Box Hill Senior. Uh, it was an art and sport focused college, just year 10, 11, and 12. And so I enrolled there. My parents took me there for an interview. And they sort of only did the intake if you wanted to seriously fully study. Like you had to do, I did fashion design, textile, studio. What were the subjects? Design and technology, studio arts, photography, business, and English. So you had, it was all or nothing. Or you would do all sports subjects. Beautiful. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. I know. Where was that school? Where, yeah. where was, like, where where was, was that? I, from yeah. There? Oh, my God. And that, and it was free dress. You, there were no uniforms because I was getting these detentions for not wearing the right Navy socks. Just really <laughs> stupid. you had a bit of tone of sock. Yeah. There was no, like, you, you were encouraged to be that rebellious spirit, I think, that lots of creatives have 
was kind of supported in a way at this new school, whereas at the other school you were criticized and, and put down for um, other ways of expression. And so I remember my mom got a phone call from the principal at one Turner after I had left and said that they did decide after all to run the class and that it was a shame to lose a student of my caliber, um, which I just is a quote I will always remember. But I'm so glad I left because kind of I think it really – that's when I started to shape who I think I have become and am still becoming because of that year 12 class. Yeah. yeah, and also just taking control, I guess, of my future. I was so scared to leave – my parents always wanted to move house and I was so afraid of being withdrawn from my school because I didn't want to make new friends and start all over again. And why it was defining is because all, all of a sudden after all those years, I took myself out of the school and put myself in the deep end. So yeah, it was like the first time I took charge of, I guess, a destiny maybe. Beautiful. Really? Mm. Wow. We love that. Yeah. yeah. Love that. And what about you, Chris? Oh, my and God. How did your childhood mould you Well, it you was a, I was a child of so a South fish and chip shop in South Australia. <laughs> so my parents had a chicken and fish shop in Christie's Beach with my uncle and auntie. Best I grew up, in the world. Uh, yeah. But I grew up around, um, I mean, it's very similar to you. Like it was kind of a non-creative household. The lucky thing was I had older sisters. So in the 80s and 90s, I was growing up around teenagers. So I was really into pop culture and makeup and hair and shoes and that kind of what's defined the way I kind of see fashion. It was my sisters kind of being around me and going shopping and How doing all those things. Got two older sisters. Amazing. One of them's, I mean, you know, she was immaculately dressed always. I, I, we call them, you know, plus size or whatever she was, but she was a good size 14. But she nailed everyone to the wall when it came to outfits. And so did my mum when she'd go to a dance or something like that. So that was my exposure to it. But my, um, in Greek, we call them sympathetas, which is like an auntie of a grandmother. And she was the seamstress. And so I would watch her sew wedding dresses for like the governor's wife and all these types of different things. And she was a strict, strict Athenian. So she was from Greece and I wasn't allowed to move past the door. I was able to watch her. And then one time she realized that I had such a love for it that she started um, letting me make rosettes, like, you know, silk rosettes. Beautiful. So my handwork is. Excitement. Yeah, I know. I was like, oh, my God, she's talking to me, not hitting me and yelling at me, as most Greek grandmothers do. And so she basically brought me into a world of understanding fabrication and, and style and then you know, off I went to primary school and I was a loner and very quiet as a child. So I would, Hard to believe, really. Can you believe it? I don't know what happened. But I shoved my, basically I shoved myself into the, the art, um, art room and my art teacher, Mr. Wright, who I still in contact with now, um, used to tell me that like he keeps remembering stories. And the other one he told me the other week was when I was, I think in year six, it was like everyone had to do something around aliens and space and I had a runway in space. Of course you did. <laughs> of course of I'm course like, did. how did that even start? Like why... Why was I so attracted to fashion? And I think it's probably within, I don't know, I think like we're born with something like that. It was just innately, I was obsessed with clothes and dressing up as a woman. Like even back then I would, like my grandma would allow me to go and rip the curtain off and then make that a veil. And it would be like, I think Princess Diana was a prolific icon for me because in the eighties, my mum wasn't reading um, Vogue. She was reading New Idea. And all those sort of like, you know, Diana was prolific to me. Like all I wanted to be was she Princess Diana. She was in every, every she was magazine. Everyone. Yeah, she was the, yep. the supermodel of my time before she the totally 90s was. hit. So even in the 90s, she was still the still, person yeah. um, that I hit. So, yeah, but I grew up very, very public school, very public high school. It was the drug, drug school of Adelaide. It was fun. There was a multicultural. It was full of all sorts of people. Like, you know, I, I grow around lots of people, different diversity. I accepted it. 
Um, and I met my best friend, Zach, who I'm still best friends with, but we were both two closeted gay men who loved cake decorating and designing clothes. So Beautiful. we met each other like Romy and Michelle almost. <laughs> <laughs> and we had our own little bubble and well that we belonged in. And that's how it all started for me. I was like allowed to be myself. So ah, I don't God. know where I came from or what happened, but it just it kind of evolved from there. So yeah, it was very normal upbringing, nothing too crazy. But how great is that, that yeah. you've had parents that let you be yourself? Totally. Yeah. You know, I think that is the greatest gift of a parent to yeah. a child to let them be who they are. It's, that um, is yeah. so powerful. They just, I don't think they were allowed. They had no choice with me. <laughs> and it sounds like Stuart was the same. I was just kind of a force to like, be reckoned with the, as a kid. What, this is where we're going. Yeah, even my principal was like, okay, calm down. And year 11 was my defining moment where there was no fashion. I was just obsessed with wanting to be a designer and sewing and there was no courses. So there was a thing called technology in the community and it was done via like, like you basically got onto a speaker and there was kids in Cooper PD and it was all about technology. Like one guy was a miner, so learning how to mine and the technology of that. And I'm like, well, a sewing machine is an object. So that's, you know, technology. So I'll do that. So I created an entire collection for all my classmates and we did a parade. So that's Amazing. Where, and I've still got that VHS and like, it's hilarious because it was in 1997, the year that Gianni Versace and Diana both passed a month of each other. And I dedicated my wedding gown to them. I mean, looking back at it, it's hilarious. You'd cry no, if you saw it. But what a foundation. Yeah, it was Hello. what began everything. But I did everything from the styling to the music. I mean, it was Spice Girls. It was, it was like, if you watched it now, I'd be like, wow, kid, like, what were you thinking? But <laughs> the clothing was questionable, to say the least. But that's where my love of sort of the idea of building the whole idealistic vibe of fashion, like from, you know, making the garment to runwaying it and styling it. So that's where my story is. It's a very similar story kind of. So that's the moment, I guess, you thought that that's yeah. something you'd like to spend your time doing. Definitely. Amazing. Yeah. I just love that. So what I'd like to talk about now, I guess, what is styling? Like there's a lot of people who call themselves stylists. What is styling to you, Stuart, today? Like how and how do you define the scope of styling now? What is it to you? Look, I would, I would like to consider myself as a visual editor and storyteller rather than maybe the term stylist because I think social media might have destroyed that term a little bit and I think the rise of the stylist over the last maybe decade has become much more um, significant but social media has also kind of cheapened the role of a stylist because it's almost like Same with photographers yeah, yeah right. like the, yeah. you know anyone thinks totally. that you can purchase a haul off yep. asos and be a digital editor and then you're a stylist now yeah. because you can put some looks together and you know what that is a now is a thing and that's part of the culture we live in which is great but i think real styling is I don't think can be taught. I don't think you can teach someone how to style because it's, it's, it's who you are and it's how you use the tools around you to express and communicate ideas. I think that is, to me, that, that storytelling and that editing of visuals and um, content to, to navigate the world. And is, you know, styling for you, it's not just about clothes. And that's what I was saying. I feel like mm. I've got you here under false pretenses <laughs> to say we're talking about clothes, but it's so much wider. Mm -hmm. And I think it's kind of funny that you did VM in a way. Mm. I'm kind of proud of that. Um, yeah. you know, well, I did the VM course because a careers counsellor like, said that it had a styling component. And so because I knew that I thought I'd landed early on 
okay, I'm going to be a stylist. That's the career I want. How do I find it? And so that was embedded in a visual merchandising diploma. Uh, and that was the closest thing I could get to it. There was no bachelor. I think White House had a, a three-year bachelor of design that they had kind of masked was like creative direction styling. Um, but that Aren't you lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Our TAFE was like, nah, <laughs> we don't have anything like that at Marston no, in no, South right. Australia. No, nothing like that. Yeah. It's changed a lot. Hey. So much. And actually it was interesting halfway through, the f- so I went to Swinburne and did my first 12 months of visual merchandising there because the RMIT diploma, which I knew was better for me, had a drawing test, but I, I can't, I, I can't draw to save myself. And so that petrified me. So I thought I'll just go to Swinburne because they won't make me do it drawing test to, to, to get that's so into the interesting from yeah. a person who can't draw yeah. i can only scribble yeah. to communicate yeah me too the three that of us have got something in common then yeah <laughs> but i can design yeah and yeah. so can you like totally. it's really interesting isn't it how everyone's expression of creativity yeah. takes a different form yeah, yeah. how do really you convey your ideas and and when you're told that that has to only be through a pencil yeah. pen on paper just absolutely petrified me. Yeah. Mm. No, that is so true. Yeah. That was my illustrator. She was like an 85-year-old scary woman that just hated me because I could never draw. She was just hated. Like she, she loved me. But she hated me, but she was like, just get out. It's not, it's not worth it. You should not be doing this subject. <laughs> that's <laughs> no good. I know, but that's the thing. But I knew that that's not what was going to define my career. Yeah. And yeah, I just yeah. she was just trying and trying. I'm like, yeah. enough foul. And she smelled like tobacco and scotch. And, I mean, I adored her, but it was yeah. just all too much. But I totally get yeah. that vibe. But isn't it funny how creative directors, um, you know, stylists and creative directors are often pulling together objects, yeah. physicalities that mm-hmm. people have already made, like mm. you said earlier, to make something bigger. Mm. And it was only after I realised that I didn't have to be skilled. I didn't have to be able to draw. I had to be able to see the vision, yeah. you know, and that's, you know, the magic, I yeah. guess. And when you realise that that might be something more amazing that you could work with other people yeah. with to create that and mm. then it's like, whoa, now yeah. we're mm. on the roll, you know. But also realising too that stylists aren't for everyone. Like one stylist doesn't just apply to to any job or any brief. It's like we all have a a different eye and we look at the world through that lens and that's very different to a stylist next to me you know so if you're it's yeah it's important to sort of align yourself creatively with the right people that share that vision you can't just hire recruit any stylist totally. to deliver the job and what that's do you think um styling you know what's its scope today how wide? What do you think? It's endless. It's, it, is, it is ridiculous. Do you, yeah. What do you think? Well, I, I feel like it's there's personal style. Like I, I'm a wardrobe stylist as well, so I walk yes. into someone's wardrobe and clear out old and new, but it's really quite broad mm. in that respect. Like even today I'm like, are we actually talking about fashion, homewares? Like yeah. Because everything's so, yeah, yeah like yeah, yeah. and especially with someone like yourself, you're so broad as well because I know seeing what you do, you pick up, you're very homewares based, but then you're in like when the intricacy of your marquee at, Flemington, the purple marquee with all the intricacy of fashion. I know that's all you and even your napkins and an event. I know that's all the drama that you bring because it's almost like a bit of fashion. Like you love those. It is. It's a blend. blend. Thing, yeah. Isn't it? So when I think of gloss and you, yourself, Amanda, I think the f- food presentation yeah, as totally. well. And then there's like food stylists, a whole nother avenue of, yeah. of the industry. It too. is so blended, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And I think that's where people um, such as, you know, that have our skill sets 
have been able to capitalize if you can conceptualize all of those threads or elements within a concept you have a career now 100%. i feel like you know that encapsulates styling i guess to to a certain extent and you've kind of you know? like i'm a fake it to you make it kind of person like i just got dropped into it and i don't even think i'm a stylist i don't i would never call I don't even know what I do half the time. Like everyone's like, what do you do? I'm like, I couldn't tell you whatever's, <laughs> whatever's, whatever's going, whatever's running at yeah. the time. But yeah. uh, like, it's just the fact that I walked into Harris Scarf and I had food stylists and these, are, and I'm thinking people were producing a catalog. That's like the images are like the five cent piece. So no one's really caring about what it is. So then I realized that no one's actually translating that back to the commercial side with the people, the buyers. So building the idea around that, like I worked with the most amazing homeware stylists and I'm like, who even knew there was homewares? I was like, oh, like a kid from Adelaide. Like just building on the fact that, you know, it doesn't sit now just in fashion. It's across the board. You know, looking at your amazing apartment today, I was like shopping. I'm like, oh, look at this. Like, this <laughs> is like style to an inch of its life, but it's you, you know. It's interesting. Um, I'm always interested in um, our tribe is often lightly qualified. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you, ha- you have qualifications. I have none. Something that Francesca from Dan Event said Um, one time and it just rang with me so much and is that life qualifies you you know that's a conversation I've always had to have with people they go oh my god your work's amazing what course did you do it's like actually I didn't do a course called life babe (laughs) yeah I made up my course from extracurricular activities and learning and investment and you know all of that I just made it up Mm. basically but it's something that I've always had to grapple with even when I applied for a scholarship one time and the first year I didn't get it and the feedback was that um, I'd forgotten to put my qualifications in the box where it says I'd put NA you need to fill them out and I was like well I actually don't have any formal qualifications and there was this like <laughs> crickets <laughs> that, you know, just, on the end of the phone yeah, they like, could not yeah. believe that I was not qualified and it's something that I've always had to explain which is really kind of annoying but understandable but it's just that thing you know the conversation that we have to have with year 12 students now if you if you get a not great ATAR don't worry about it it. you know and yet we put so much pressure on I mean if you can learn I'm all about learning and if you can get qualified amazing but that wasn't the path that yeah, worked for me yeah they didn't me. teach you how to like look at color combos at high school and be like look at these what do you think or yeah. like look at fabrication or texture or anything like none yeah. of those conversations were happening yeah and yeah it's like life teaches you that traveling experiencing yeah. exactly and, that's the thing, you can and never, working yeah and even going to a styling course for two days i mean that's like literally just talking about your kit like what do you need like you need a yeah. whole day just talking about a styling kit mm. what's you know you learn those types of things i mean i've always tried to surround myself with the right people and I just looked towards, I was like, who is the coolest stylist in Sydney? And if I had the budget in Harris Scarf, I'd hire them. And it would Amazing. be like a, a fleecy top, um, you know, combo for Mother's Day that was like thirty nine ninety five. But Christine Centenero was styling that. So just you so knew I, it was going to be cool. You know, it was chic. She's like, we needed George's Anthony. And it all became this thing of rolling creatives that I was suddenly like bankrolling this fabulous lifestyle of mine. But with someone else's money, which is what you do. Your career is built on that, but you also learn. Other people's money. Well, other people's <laughs> money is fantastic to learn by and, you know, you're not making any mistakes because they don't know any better. So, <laughs> but having those people around you and teaching you how to do that, then that's how I kind of adapted my knowledge of styling, just having Amazing. the right people. Yeah. 
I love it. I mean, always, that's a great thing to find. Always work with people who are smarter than you. Yeah, 100%. One, not you, one, you know, like yeah, that's that's where the goodness and the yeah. learnings are, I guess, as well. I mean, even taping a shoe, my God. Like it's yeah. like there's an intricacy to it. Mm. How do you tape a shoe? Oh my god! I want to hear. Okay, I want to hear how both of you tape shoes, please. Well, I learned from many different stylists, different techniques. I think it was Virginia Dowser that had the queen. The queen. Her her technique was um, you would you you would crumple paper. If this is if this wasn't from Virginia, she'll she'll kill me for saying this. But you (laughs) crumple paper. Sorry, Virginia. Sounds like something she'd do. You crumple the paper around the shoe so it's not neat but because of the texture of the paper it, it, like indentations from gravel will, like are less likely to pierce through the paper and so when i was doing that um it would really rattle a lot of people backstage that had severe ocd because they want to see this like very clean like one layer of masking tape one layer of duct tape and then trimmed to an inch of its line but yeah that that's sort of i toss and turn between those two but i still think that uh it's an untapped product a pre-cut piece of tape that you could just whack on to the shoe like you could make billions zara is the king they've got them like it's the best yeah zara give you your shoe when you buy a shoe from zara it's got a plastic film on the bottom but can you buy that film no to put on any it's like it's like a tape like a like a tape you know like the boob tape it's like right we should do that today we're starting a job that's it we're going to be millionaires on this one thing i love it mine was mine was um it's the it's not the gaffer it's a really soft electric electrical tape black and what I do is, and this is, a, I've been taught by Pip Maroney, who's also an amazing stylist. You take the shoe on set with, and they wear slippers, like hotel slippers, and mm. you pop the shoe on right on. So they're not moving around in the shoe because there's way too many designer shoes been destroyed in the Vogue like cupboard. So they're like cautious. So I take a pair of hotel slippers with me to shoots and I change them on set. And I still do it myself. I refuse I for anyone it. to touch any shoe. Because it's that's like, great. Because obviously there's dollars there. Yeah, hundred so percent, and no one realizes. And I mean, that's the thing. You go struggle to borrow anything now because every Tom, Dick, and Harry is a stylist, and they've damaged everything. So you go and be the reputable stylist, or trying to be. You're like, I promise, I won't like kill the shoe, and they're like, fine. But it's then, runway though. That's yeah, the hardest. That's the thing. When the brief is like, cool, hundred outfits walking through <laughs> the CBD <laughs> on the sidewalk. So my shoe kit is, uh, I, I reckon I'm exceeding like maybe 60 or 70 wow, pairs now. that's extensive. Just, well, they're all damaged. Yeah. <laughs> I've had to buy them all. <laughs> but uh, that's how I navigate it. Just if they're going to be worn on the street, I just try and buy them, you yeah. know, or just. It's so funny because I'm obsessed with shoot footwear and what I love doing when I used to work with Pip and a lot of the stylists where you'd go like to Boohoo and source the mm. ugliest, coolest shoe ever, and that would be a runway shoe, so we could throw yeah. them out. But just seeing even that process, I mean, I find that so exciting to find a really cheap shit shoe and make it look shit hot. Like and it's a vibe. It, well, gives, ASOS. it, it gives yeah. a look. Yeah. One hundred and one. It gives yeah. a look. They are, totally. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. Like I'm definitely. upset. Like let's see what Mawadi they've got. They've ripped off and see what heel they've given it. And if it's probably exactly the same vibe of shoe, but like, how do you make it look amazing? Like that was always. I love it still now. It gives me like even talking about it. I get it excited. Makes you excited. Yeah. yeah. I love it. <laughs> So my next question is about the different stages of styling development Um, and I'm going to get you to describe the stages of it. But maybe because we've started to talk about runways already, let's talk about it in the context because obviously we've all done runways. I mean, I'm sitting here thinking about you and styling, but I've actually... You've done it too. I've done like... (laughs) 30 sets for, yeah. <laughs> or no, 40 sets for runways. So let's talk about the creative process. So, you know, uh, big shows coming up. How does the whole thing work? 
For me, when I was creative director, I wanted to give the audience something they've never seen. And especially in Adelaide, it's very limited in fashion. So to give them an experience that they've never had is what I've always wanted and giving them designers or vibe that they've never seen. So taking it to another place is where I always start the process. And then I select the designers from there or, or curate with the stylist being majority of the time Pip Moroni from Vogue because she she's my sounding board when it comes to anything like that. Um, and then taking it from there and figuring out who works with who and how it's going to gel. I feel like for me, a lot of the runways at the moment are just like, it's the designer and it's done. I was like, I like to build themes and ideas around that runway, you know, whether it be bridal or magical and they all have, you know, a cohesive theme. So that's how I start. And obviously the the, an obvious one that comes to mind yes. is the palace. Oh my God, were they mental? Um, <laughs> yeah. Just they were unbelievable genius. level of magic yeah. that came out of South Australia Look, for that. Paul, Paul always has a, yeah, a defining vibe in his collections. He's always got a theme. So it was for him, it's 20 amazing gowns and they all have a story. And to stretch that out over 20 minutes in Adelaide and charging what we were charging at that point, people were buying, we would sell out within five minutes of his runway. But we would always try and give everyone a magical moment, like what you saw at Chanel or we just tried to build that energy with Paul. And luckily enough, we were allowed to with the budgets that we had with state government, but he delivered every time. And we, from a production, being limited in Adelaide, but we really just gave everyone something they've never seen before. I mean, one time we built an entire meadow in the marquee and the florist was walking around with fresh grass from the Barossa Valley that had just been picked up. And she was spraying grass smell the whole way through as she's working during the night. And I, wa- I watched her the whole way through and it took her about 10 hours to build this runway by herself. But she was spraying and like we had like the, the music playing and it was, you know, it was so Miri and, you know, he loves Lana Del Rey and sort of Kate Miller Heike. And so it's moody and weird. And it's just this energy that I can't explain, but he's magic, that kid. And he just wants you to create magic. So with him, it's addictive. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. So how does the process start? Like, do you start with the client, um, the designers? How does it work? I think often a stylist, I mean, at least for me in the work I'm doing, most of the time the brief comes to me already. So I'm sort of delivering a solution rather than delivering a concept. So for me, it would start by the curation of the designers. Often here in Australia, the group shows group formatted shows in in fashion weeks so yeah we'll curate the list of designers and then start reaching out for the collections and then from you know once you see what's available and what the offering is it becomes much easier to uh to edit and and cull and to make a yeah final range of products but i think the real magic starts when the products are there in front of you and you can touch them and feel them and um, start to fit them and get a better sense of how that comes to life on a 3D form. And that's when I think the show starts to be built. It's really interesting yeah. that moment where that's what I call it coming off the page. Mm-hmm. You know, you're working on, oh, it's going to be this. And yeah. we've had those discussions. It's going to be this. And then there'll be that. And we're yeah. thinking it'll be this. And everyone's going, yeah, 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 sure. And then, and then four days before or five, mm. it depends yeah. when you start two weeks or four days before, when you have the products. That's what's kind of exciting because yeah. you can see the possibilities or where you need to find solutions or pump things up yeah. or change things or yeah. whatever. I've, you know, I've watched a lot of stylists. That seems incredibly stressful to me because I'm doing the design that's sort of already been done, mm. you know, and it's being installed and everything. But then I watch people like yourselves backstage and I go, holy hell, 
how are they going to get 183 exits <laughs> out of this? You know, yeah. like the and teams of perfection. people backstage and all of that sort of stuff. How does that all work? Well, you do so much administration yeah, work that no one ever sees. And I think yeah. when, when a, you know, next wave of stylists is being born and they, you know, doing work experience or they're interning or, you know, whatever, which way, I always say, do you do understand that there's like, this is like 90% emails and like 10% hands-on yeah. you know oh, so it does I, th I think i always feel confident in the madness at the end because i've done such thorough research and investigation into what those products are going to be but actually when the products arrive that's when i have a sigh of relief like that's when i feel the most confident when the delivery rocks up and they're yeah. not gone missing happy. yeah they're in the ship yeah. somewhere and like mine's in a container i'm like great didn't want <laughs> to hear that which which container babe because <laughs> i'll go find it myself we're going there now yeah, yeah. <laughs> so i guess that sort of leads to a kind of an obvious question is styling glamorous no i think it's an unforgiving job it's so funny i was talking about this with a friend the other day and we were talking about a certain runway that happened a couple of weeks ago here in Melbourne and the stylist came out at the end and celebrated himself, which is great. But how about the people that have put all the work into the clothing? And it really, I mean, it's so not kosher to do that. Like you're, un it's unforgiving. I mean, there's no one that ever, ever stylist gets a pat on the back. And I was talking about that with Grace Coddington. If it wasn't for um, the September issue, she would never have really come front and centre mm. because she is the wheels that was churning American Vogue. And Anna Wintour with her bob and her fabulousness, but it was really Grace Coddington that's the star of that show. Mm. But she's so politically right in the way that a stylist is. You take whatever you're given and you build the magic and the designer will take the credit. But that's okay because that's your job. That's the role. That's the role. Yeah. You, it's, but I kind of love that. I call it mm. ghost work. Yeah. Yes. Because yeah, you're always yeah. there. You're always there and mm -hmm. it's never seen. And I think that yeah. is the magic, right? Like when you present that image or mm -hmm. that show that looks so seamless and so yes. effortlessly just curated, mm -hmm. but actually it's like hundreds of people working yeah. hundreds of hours yeah, totally. to get there. The other thing I've noticed that's not glamorous about styling is that you have to ask people for a lot of product. Mm. How does that relationship, you know, because to me that would be a fairly sacred relationship to ensure that people will give you the best product and that you'll look after it and return it and, you know, all of that, you know, you're always asking people for something. Mm. How do you process that? I always have to be in a mood. Like I have to be in a hustling mood. Like sometimes I'm not in the hustling mood. And especially if it's something big, because if my brain isn't there or the idea of having to think about how am I going to ask this question or can you send me a $40,000 couture gown express tomorrow? Like you've just got to be, I don't know, for me, it's a mental thing. Mm. Like sometimes I just can't do it. But mm. It is hard, isn't it? It's a it? hustle. Yeah. Mm. It's I think it's the hardest thing. Mm. I've seen, you know, the pressure. I feel like there's a pressure because the client, you know, I'll go, okay, I'm thinking da 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 and then all of a sudden you have to produce it in two or three days. Mm. I just feel that pressure. That's why I always kind of try to get some information before I accept a job because if I can't deliver it with my own vetted network of trusted contacts, I won't take it on. It's not worth the stress. Yeah. So I only sort of work on jobs where I know I can actually deliver on the product. Otherwise, it's not good for anyone. Yeah. I see I love the challenge of not knowing what the hell I'm doing and just – fudging it and then it works somehow, right. a miracle of God and some sort of 
That's that called Angel. Original yeah, work, I'm Chris. telling you. I did it a couple of months ago in Adelaide on a shoot and I was just like, I had a day to organize it, but it just, and my auntie has this crazy, amazing beach house in, in Nalunga that looks like it's Hamptons outside, but inside it's a seventies pussy palace. I love it. And I just threw every ugly garment I found anywhere. And it just, it's probably one of the best shoots I've ever done, but I just look at it and go, that was sick. Like, I don't know how I did that in half a day on a Sunday with my crew in Adelaide, but it was just like, it just worked creatively. Beautiful. It was almost like not caring worked a little bit. I love mm. that. Yeah. That's interesting. Just, yeah. Yeah. That's confidence. Yeah. But we and, care a lot, I think. And exploration. Yeah. I think it is amazing. I think I've gotten to a point in my crew now where I can see it now. I can deliver it. As with before, I was so scared. My first shoot was like for Razak in Adelaide as I was 20 year old and I had no idea what I was doing. And now I look back at it and just laugh at the hair and the makeup and the posing and the bad photography and like I had a guy who would photograph strippers do it like it was just a nightmare (laughs) and looking back at how much you've learned like it's just nuts yeah there's a really great saying about brands and it says if you can look back at your own work and cringe you know you joined that at the right time whereas if you can look at your brand and not cringe you're too late to the party and I think I look back at some of the early works we did and I just like you know like yeah terrible but no one else was doing it you know so you we were just starting out and just doing what we thought Mm, and that over time leads to something pretty pretty incredible I think the glamour thing is so interesting how careers now that we have are perceived as glamorous you know there's always a beautiful um, mailbox of you know people who want to have our careers I guess now lifestyle yeah sought after Mm. it's a bit of the devil wears Prada everyone Mm. wants to be like us yeah there's a few images come to mind (laughs) but I guess it really isn't that glamorous the glamorous part is when it all goes well you know and there is a lot of hard work behind it um, like you said, the administration and all of that mm. sort of thing. So the returns, it's yeah. the returns. I know. I wrote. I wrote some notes, and I yeah. think I put returns in capital letters. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get to that because I'm about to ask you guys now. What does your everyday look like? Describe to me the shape of each of your days. Any day you want, a admin day or a best day on earth day. Describe your day as a stylist. I don't think I can because every day is so is is really just so different, and I think that is why I always wanted to freelance and and be run my own business as a freelance stylist because of the inconsistency in what the day to day looked like. But if I had to sort of summarize it, it would be starting on the it starts on emails and finishes on emails, and then what happens in the middle is just like a bit of a blur of no like food. Describe everything. <laughs> no, place. I had an assistant once who asked. Uh, it got to about 4 p.m. and she said, can we please stop and have something to eat? I and I realized that over time, I really have trained myself to like not use a bathroom, not eat, because sometimes you're working for like 14, 15 hours and beyond on like, especially in like film and TV sets. And that's just that hard work. You just keep going until the job's done. Yeah. Sometimes you don't even, don't even go to the bathroom. It's terrible. Oh, my God. <laughs> so not my, glamorous. Mine starts with dawdling. Because I like to figure out what's going on. Like I kind of know what needs to happen, but I dawdle. I'm very much a procrastinator. And then it just like, okay, I'll go get the coffee. And as soon as I get my coffee for the morning, it all starts. And I'll kind of just, it's the barrage of emails. And I've probably got multiple projects happening plus a full-time job. So 
it's the constant like which email am I on and which who am I writing back to at this point in time you know like sending like options I sent them to my boss in London the other day I'm like I'm so sorry that was for a client (laughs) for this and this and this like just keeping up with the email dialogue but I always like stopping and going for a walk and just looking at my phone or being somewhere outside and just researching I'm loving at a cafe and Mm. just delving into research and what's new and what's hot and what's not and then I get fixated by like an earring and then I just start hustling the earring and how am I going to get my client to wear that earring? Like I think about that's my day. Like it becomes, Beautiful. Yeah, it's like a, me- a hot mess but fun. Well, it sort of sounds like it has a flow to it though. Yeah, yeah totally. Always yeah. wake up, get the coffee, figure out what's prodding around my apartment. I, I think that. my first step actually is getting dressed. Okay, cool. I'm not dressed at this point. Yeah. Because <laughs> I can't. You're looking great. I can't sit at a computer. I can't sit at my desk if I don't have shoes on. Oh, wow. There's like some sort of, like the finishing of the outfit okay, allows cool. me to be productive. That's amazing. So to have my shoes on, I need to have the outfit, right? So that, that's 100%. actually where I think the so day starts. you can't start. work without your shoes. God, no. Oh my God, no. I'm naked half the time. I'm no, just I like can't. bolting around like a nudist. It's like mental. No, I'm fully dressed head to toe. Oh <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> my God, I love that. Like today was a stress because it's like 40 degrees outside. I'm like, how do you walk into a room of people like us and not be half decently dressed? But I could have come in a pair of like sports shoes, right. shorts and a t-shirt. I would have. You would have worked. We're yeah, we're relaxed been fine. here today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like look at us, but it's still it's like the pressure of that. You're like, oh my god, getting up. But I'm just like, eh. and I'm lucky. My boss is in London, so she wakes up at four. Like by four o'clock, I've she's getting emails at you know it's at eight o'clock in the morning for her. So perfect. You're I've on got a fire. full day. Yeah, I've got You're a full day. On fire. Yeah, I'm ready to go. I love that. I love that. Where has your styling taken you around the world? Like, have you been places because of your work, because of styling? I have because of the jobs I had. So for some weird reason, and I'll go into this, I always, my mother always made me have a full-time job because she just worried about me going without. I don't know why. It's just a wog thing. I can say wog because I'm a Greek, but it's just this Greek thing that or like a European mentality of always having a full-time job plus that other stuff that you like doing, which is my career and my livelihood. So I was lucky enough with Harris Scarf to travel and style and with Vera Wang, I produced the Simply Vera by Vera Wang collection for them. And was flown every two or three weeks to style and shoot the collections in New York because you had to. So I've worked with the most amazing hair and makeup artists who like, you know, oh, I've got to go and do Kirsten Dunst in a minute. I was just laughing. I'm thinking, hi, I'm from like, you know, South Australia and I'm listening to these people getting paid 30 grand to do hair and makeup. It's nuts. But, you know, that it's just crazy when you walk into a room of like in Australia, I feel like we're unfortunately not respected enough and not paid enough. When you go internationally, these people are being paid so well to do. I mean, to put someone like Stuart in that context would be paying, he'd be hundreds of thousands of dollars to be styling what he's doing and coming back, you're like, hi, can I have 10 grand to do this? And it's like, (laughs) no. Yeah. Like, (laughs) oh, maybe we'll give you five. What can you do? I'm like, oh fuck. Okay, cool. No worries. But yeah, traveling the world. I mean, with Paul, I took Paul to Paris with the state government, but on his shoots, like we were skeleton so I was the stylist on the shoot and I'm like in a chateau in the middle of a 40 degree day in Paris eating flies and putting on these $45,000 gowns on my birthday always on the 1st of July always Paul just knew when to hit the button so I'm working and hustling what a great birthday, but what a birthday really yeah. but traveling and and seeing the world like that and I'm thinking we're just kids from Adelaide being rat bags and here we are at some chateau on a golf cart eating flies on 40 degree day in Paris. Like how can you get any better? But yeah, Yeah. I was lucky enough that I built my whole career around traveling and doing fun things. I made, I found projects that were 
international, I could do this or do that, and I just sell them in as business. But And you you sort of live half the time in South Australia, half yeah, the time in Melbourne anyway. You've got Constantly. It, yeah. Well, I've got so much. I, I work as a stylist for SA Style Magazine, and I do that on the weekends now because I don't have time. But those are kind of shoots that just let me go crazy. And that's fun. I mean, there's no budget. God Freedom's forbid, great. But freedom yeah. is great, you know, and it's exciting that I get to do that. But I can't wait to get on a plane. I'm frothing. Take me to Paris. Like, take me anywhere. Agreed. Like, even Queensland. I'm like, oh, can we just go there now? What's going on? It's but time yeah. to go, isn't it? Yeah. But working internationally and seeing how they work compared to what we do. I mean, we work so hard for every cent that we – and just watching them be they're like $15,000 hair and makeup artists and – $100,000 photographers, you're thinking, how? Mm. <laughs> that's, our, that's not even our budget. That's half our budget of the entire project. So. And was there something that the way they worked or what they did that was inspiring? It was, but it also made me realise how talented we are here. Great. And it was really made, like photographers are great, but, God, there's some epic photographers here in Australia. Like George's Anthony I've worked with my whole life and – will not pay myself to pay him because he's just such a genius to work with. And that's what you want. You want to surround yourself with people that doesn't matter how hard you're working, the right vibe comes out. And those photos at the end of the day are the most prolific things you've ever seen in your whole entire life. So yeah, no, look, and being in a room with someone like Christine, who I grew up with, but knowing where she's gone and how she still works exactly the same way as she did when she was 15. Beautiful. And they all watch her and are inspired by her. You just, that's an it's an Australian way of working. It's like it, we're not finishing until it's done sort of mm. mentality. So, And I feel other countries see that. Yeah, 100%. When, and, you know, and actors obviously in America yeah. and London and all of that. I think, you know, Australian creatives are really well respected overseas. Yeah, 100%. Mm. Yeah, there's Definitely. a vibe. And we're so relaxed and funny. And by the end of the day, no one realises what's happened, but we've just knocked out like 100 shots and everyone's feeling a vibe and wants to go out for drinks later. You're like, great. Beautiful. Just carry, you know, that's the cool thing about what we as Aussies do. So that's, yeah. That's amazing. And what about you, Stuart? I've been pretty grounded here for the last 10 years, but I think in my early 20s, I did a lot of self like work trips in New York and Tokyo where I would do sort of more editorial based um, work with friends that were photographers. So that's, that's kind of the travel that I've done. I mean, I would love to do more. Maybe that's the next decade we'll bring that. Um, but yeah, I've been kind of happy circulating around this beautiful little city. What I'd love to know from both of you, describe your styling style or your creative point of view. Like, you know, when I look at your feed, you know, the beautiful things that come through, I kind of know you've done it. It's always different. Mm. And obviously, you know, uh, more recently, it's insane. Um, describe your creative point of view. It's a great question. Um, I know. I just thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. I'm waiting for it. I'm like, you know, I think what's so interesting about this job is that I think people, I don't think I, I don't think that it's that interesting. I don't think what I do or my point of view is, wow. is interesting. And I think that. Huh? <laughs> I'd like to disagree. Yes, I agree. Maybe yeah, that is what makes the work good or enjoyable for other people to um, absorb it because it's just organically kind of comes together. I don't, I can't explain how it happens. I think more recently with the lockdown diaries that a lot of people kind of were following in um, lockdown where I turned like everyday household objects into iconic runway looks that just happened in the kitchen. Like I just started archiving images on my phone into a folder and I would wake up every day 
and pick one and just get to work and just keep making until it looked how I wanted it to look in the mirror. And I'd fit it onto my body so I could see it. It's like building, like you yeah. sort of stack the pieces together. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And then I was always like, how does he do, how has he kept it all together I know. in that photo? <laughs> yeah, I was always like, like the how-to, of course. Ever, yeah. Like how do I we deconstruct that? I had a good inkling. Yeah. Well, that, I tried to strategically take it in the position where I, I took it in my stairwell, right? Because so, there was a mirror behind me. So you could kind of, I wanted to expose that behind the front was all gaffer taped and so I've got a hundred questions. So did you have someone helping you or was it all you tying it up and draping it? And like, I just want to know as the looks evolved <laughs> over time, they became much more complex yeah. and required some assistance. So my partner um, at the time um, helped me sort of you get into them. You did Lycra before Balenciaga did Lycra. They were like, um, pa. Like you were like, it was about to, you were literally exploded. Like you were doing your thing and then Balenciaga was at the same, but I feel like you did it like at the same time that like you just took Jersey into a place that now everyone's doing Jersey. But. Well, I always had that Junior Watanabe reference. Yeah. And so when I saw Kim Kardashian in the Balenciaga at the Met, I thought that to me is when I saw her wearing it, I thought well, that is such a similarity to this Junior look. But yeah. to me, the junior was just so much more fascinating how it was all sort of st these objects stacked underneath the lycra and then strapped down and tied together. So I just did a fusion and um, my housemate had just sort of moved in at that time. And so she's like wrapping me. I can't breathe. I'm like suffocating in this lycra. <laughs> I'm like, quick, quick, we got to get the shot. Like, otherwise I'm going to have to take it all off. And it was just pots and pans and yeah. tissue boxes. It was a wok at one. There was a wok, was a wok under yeah. there. Yeah. Like with a bit I'm of rope. with wok shapes, like the wok shape yeah. hat and stuff. Like it was hectic. And there's no planning. I guess the point is that the, the, there's no clear plan. And that's, I think what makes yeah. it so beautiful is because you can just trial and error until it works. And sometimes you don't have that luxury in the commercial world when there's a client investing money. Um, and that's why I was so happy for lockdown in a way that it allowed me to tap into a side of my brain I probably hadn't explored since maybe I was 16 or 17 yeah. years old. And Ross Sabatini mentioned that actually when we did Creative Process with him in the first series, he said that during lockdown he just started to paint mm. with no intention well, it wasn't for yeah. anything. It was just for fun, just to explore and just to have some fun with it. Um, and I think that exploration, you know, that combination mm. of commercial and then self-initiated things that you think are great and fun to do, mm. um, you know, I felt like that when we did the NGV Art of Dining. You know, it was no brief, please, no, please yourself. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, we did some of our... You know, if money was no object, yeah. what would you do? Totally. We just did what we yeah. wanted. Yeah. I think what the, the freedom, hell we wanted. Freedom is energizing, right? Yeah. So totally. It's the best. It is. When it's you, yeah, when your clients like just do what you want, you're like, oh my God, it's like, you know, the gift, you know, a gift. It is totally uh, yeah. it is totally a gift. And sometimes a burden. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> because it's like forever. It's never right. What is it gonna be? Yeah. <laughs> you just have to go with something in the yeah. end. I've got a really interesting um, observation uh, for you, Chris, and yes. I'm interested in how you've melded social media with this whole styling, creative direction thing and what purpose social media holds for you. And I do think it's more than the fun, yes. I'll say, and I do think in a way it's about your network and the people yeah. that you enjoy being with, um, 
yeah, who you spend your time with, who you create with. Talk to me about social media for you. For me, it's never been, it's been a chore. Like I love it and I hate it like we all do, but it's for me a way of communicating myself, my life. I mean, everyone thinks my life is a party. It is. And, and it's a lot of fun. Look, don't get me wrong. But the people I surround myself with, I feel like I'm showing them as well. Like I'm showcasing people that I don't necessarily think have got a voice or had a voice. And like, I love showing beautiful, amazing people or just fabulous people or pop culture or something I see that's funny. So I use that um, social media for that and expressing my work. I really wasn't good at giving myself the opportunity to talk about myself. I didn't like it. I thought it was, um, you know, crazy to be, oh, well, self-promotion. It's not self-promotion. It's just showing people what you're doing and how you're doing it. I think inspiring people for me is what I like doing and seeing, you know, one minute I'm in Adelaide in my mum's lounge room, everything's covered in plastic. And the next minute I'm at society having martinis, you know, like it's just that juxta of my life. And I think the honesty that comes from my social media is really important to me. Mm -hmm. But I feel like a lot of people have become really politicky and political and not having fun with it anymore. It's become very serious mm, game. And mm, I'm so done with that. Mm, like I don't want Better I get onto TikTok. Oh my God, TikTok. I can't like I'm a good dancer, but not that good. Like I'm a freestyler. Like I'll just do whatever I want to do or sing Mariah Carey randomly. At, See, I think TikTok will become something that's not about the crazy videos. Yeah. I know there are a couple of people who I've known who are actually running businesses from it already. Yeah, 100%. So I do think that that's going to become a thing. And I think people like us will make it what it what we can do yeah. with it and change it, well, you know. Roxy Jasenko was the one that started me on Instagram. She's like, I was working. She was my PR for Harris Car. She's like, mate, your life's amazing. Why aren't you documenting it? I'm like, who wants to watch me go run around, do whatever I'm doing? But she was the one that made me start my account mm. 12 years ago. I mean, look at her now. She's a mogul and that's how she's built her business. But mm. for me, it's always been about expressing what I'm doing or what, who I'm with or, you know, the exciting things I've got or yummy food or like mm. it's just like a lifestyle bundle. So, and it's, sometimes I just don't like talking to people. So it's a great way for my mother not to call me because she knows where I'm at. <laughs> so I've just put it up on Insta. My sister will be like, oh, he went out last night, mum, so don't call him until, yeah. you know, 12 o'clock the next day. Perfect. So it's good. Managing yeah, family. Managing family also. expectations. I love it. Yeah. And Stuart, what was the reaction? I mean, I'm... The reaction when you started to do the lockdown diaries. Why do you think people love that so much? And what, how has that changed your, or has it changed your thoughts about social media and the way you use it? Yeah, I think what was most infectious about the lockdown diaries was the sense of community that I think it fostered because not only was I creating these outfits and then photographing them and posting them all on the same day, but then I'd sit on my phone for hours at night and respond to all of the people and the, you know, that were commenting and sending me DMs and the running thread through most of the comments was how uplifting and joyful it was making other people's daily experiences because what was happening around us was pretty crap. And so I think it was, it went beyond the actual creations and became more about the conversations that came from that. And then I even started, there was these beautiful women, they might've been nurses and they tagged me in one of their weekly uh, catch-ups or so something that they did where they, one of their themes for the, for the virtual catch-up was oh. that they'd all create an outfit inspired by these lockdown diaries. And so that's when I started to see that it was kind of like, you know, I really think if I had the time and I did it all the time, it could have just blown up into this huge thing. But I've got a question. Has any one of the products that you've used come to you and said, can you do this or can you do that? Like, you know, the, like the 
the sponges that you use or anyone like that? Because I always think about the financial benefit of something amazing <laughs> like this and how you did any of those brands come to you? But like, this brands, is genius. Brands noticed it. Like, yeah. when I did Blondie for the Met Gala, uh, um, Debbie Harry sort of, there was some interaction there. And wow. Um, right. Yeah. Some of the other brands yeah. had, you know, I was waiting. I was like, could this, if someone, if this got on Diet Prada or yeah. you know, <laughs> something, Mark Jacob shared it or whoever, then it could have been just an overnight yeah. sensation. But I kind of liked that it remained sort of local. And I loved it. But, um, I was always thinking uh, about that. I'm like, oh my God, is a sponge company or is someone like, you know, yeah. someone I definitely I think that should this. become a thing though. Yeah, don't you think? Well, like, I was tagging them like Woolworths, yeah. like, Woolworths, Jocks. Yeah. So someone take note. Home brand. Home brand. <laughs> I yeah, feel like that. my favourite thing, which I looked for it the other day because I was really missing it. You would have to put it back up. Um, after I think it was one of the things related to the pink sponge mm. and it was you in a story washing up with the sponge yeah. <laughs> with this sort of nonchalant look about the sponge and then you finish doing the dishes and you just clip it back and walk off. It was actually my favourite moment yeah, from like, the entire series. Really? Was yeah. Well, there was one laundry basket I wore <laughs> to emulate like it might have been a Tim Walker shoot I think with Emma Corrin. So I thought I did like a little video of me doing the washing. Love like that. I think when I was dressed up, and this is also the power that styling has, like when a model's fully dressed on a shoot, they sort of take on this other character and personality. Yeah. And that was what was happening in my own home. Like I'd put this sponge dress on and these crazy heels and I just become right. someone that else. That energy of someone, like you're right, the model and that vibe of energy at that point in time is like you literally- You cross the, over. Yeah. yeah. It's like the best feeling in the world. And I guess that's kind of what drag is, right? Yeah. When you become another character, totally. everything changes. Yeah. So, yeah, that was, it was just funny. It, was, it really was just such a personal project to like, it was that or just really dark depression. Yeah. yeah. Well, so, that's, well, that's, you nailed that. it then. Yeah. <laughs> you nailed it. From darkness comes the light. Exactly. Yeah, totally. that's, I mean, that's the creative journey really, isn't it? Always. <laughs> Always. Okay, I've got seven questions Ooh. kind of quick fire because of course we're talking for so long yeah, and loving it we could go all afternoon first one is Stuart favorite project and why oh tough tough call I think when the National Trust invited me to rummage through their archive of um costume their, their collection of costumes and, and historical garments from like you know the early 1900s to you know, the, the, there was so much stuff in there. And Lizzie, the curator, had um, reached out to me and just said, we want you to come in, put your own lens on it, find what you're drawn to, merge it with contemporary Australian designers and then create some sort of installation within our exhibition. I think this was in 2017. And that creative freedom and trust just off the back was just so uplifting to just really... I don't know. Like I could see it in the images. Yeah, and they're I think the, they're images the images that, that I you, was just like keep give me yeah, more. Yeah. Just it was so powerful. Yeah, and I think that that's a really special project. Um, and I just adore those images. I, my friend Olivia Tran shot them. We flew Curtis down from Sydney uh, at the time, and just we just created. There was no, there was no sort of one watching over us, editing what we were doing. It just came together. Perfect. Yeah. And then that or the recently um, Fashion Times Art at NGV that recently happened for Melbourne Fashion Week. That was a pretty beautiful experience. There was so much in that. Yeah. So. I feel like 
there was so much in there. Each vignette could have been a whole thing. Mm, yeah. yeah. It was so rich. Yeah. Yeah, and just a new way to observe fashion. Let the audience move through the visuals rather than the content being passed by them in a rapid moment. Yeah. What about you, Chris? Favourite oh, project wow. and why? Um, I've always had a fascination, I think, because the art gallery has been free for me in my life and I've always I've gone and looked at the most amazing paintings in Australian you know, history and world history and to be able to have the ability to take my good friend and designer Paolo in and mix him into the European collection. So taking moments from... Dream. So we basically took his collection over his 10-year anniversary and we curated the art to the dresses. So each signified um, a flow and vibe. I mean, we took, like, we had, like, a, a, it, was a, it was a live, like, meadow in the middle of the gallery. I mean, to sit there and walk through that with curators, with directors, it was a dream come true because you never think you're ever going to get that opportunity because so, it's such a sacred place, a gallery. But I always thought how amazing to take his 10-year anniversary and build it within the festival and have something that's got three months of longevity. And they had, I mean, for me also, I'm a business businessman, and the, I think they had over 200,000 visits Great. of that exhibition alone. And it's Job probably the done. Most, most successful exhibition they've ever had in history. And I'm like, tick. And that was done off, you know, the, the vibe of Paul, but then bringing in all these amazing, beautiful artworks. So that was, me, for me, a career-defining moment, I would say. Yeah. yeah. So far. Spot on. Yeah. Amazing. Wow. Okay. What are your thoughts on how to create original works? This is something that we always talk about at Gloss. Um, there's a lot, obviously in fashion, there's a lot of trend, there's a lot of replication, there's a lot of zeit. We talk about the zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. How do you create something that's original, given that you're working with trends? Yeah, Oof, that's a tough one. I mean, I'll always say that I reference, I'm a referencer from way back because I feel like it's the world we live in and I feel like people like originality, but people from a commercial big perspective I've always put my commercial hat on sometimes if it's a big project you need to hit the masses so if it's too artistic and too developed sometimes it doesn't resonate so but when it's coming to talking to a group of these amazing intellects or artists and making it completely original then that's when my brain goes crazy but I've always make myself just go there like nothing's wrong when you're trying to do something original it's your own vibe it's what you're bringing but having some sense of um I don't know style or understanding you know taste is one thing too because some things can just be really ugly and not right and everyone's like oh great it's me and I'm like yeah but it's not great <laughs> and there's no taste level in it so I don't know if that answers that question yeah quickly. totally totally I try not to research too much I think when I look too deep into like other trends or what stylists have done on maybe the same brief in the previous season or I start to create this I box myself in creatively and I start to really doubt myself. So I try to just actually switch off to a lot of things and just develop the work. And then I'll look afterwards before it's delivered just to make sure there's like, you know, if I need to make some edits or changes, if something's too similar or, you know, mm. yeah. So I just so try to like from have within. tunnel. Yeah. Yeah. Just have tunnel vision and tap into the freedom that what, what freedom I have from the itself. brief. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Great. All right. Here you go, Chris. Back of house or front of house? You know what? We're, it's so funny because we were laughing about me being front of house. I am so back of house because I'm a perfectionist and I need to make sure everything is right. It doesn't matter who you are and how much you've worked in this industry. You could have 50 years experience. I'm still there. And it's not because I'm watching you. It's because I'm learning. 
I'm a, I love as getting in there and just helping get it done is my vibe 100% publicly. I love most, it. most people really want me front, yeah, and, but like, I, I can't, I, I don't really like it. Like at a runway interesting. to sit at a runway gives me anxiety. I'd rather be back a house yeah. watching the looks go through. And it was always at fashion festival when I was doing it, I would just sit there with anxiety thinking, is that going to go out this way? But most of my stylists, I would sit there with them at their fittings. I would sit at pre-prod. I would sit Beautiful. throughout the whole process because you have to. I love that. We're perfect. I'm a perfectionist. I'm a psychopath. So I watch it and then I'll go sit out and make, make out that I want to be out there, but I actually don't. I love that. Yeah. What about you, Stuart? 100% back of house. Ever since I produced my fashion show in high school in the gymnasium, so I, just, I, I just knew. <laughs> it, it, there's a bubbling of energy that mm-hmm. happens backstage and it, yeah. it's so addictive. Um, so, but aside from that, I'm an absolute introvert and very shy and the thought of being in front of house or in front of like people just petrifies me. So maybe that's why I chose this career, just to exist behind the scenes. Perfect. Yeah, love I'm loving those reasons. They're brilliant. What's your personal favourite outfitting for, let's say, a black tie, a Saturday morning and a creative meeting? Just describe in a few words what you might go for. If there was a black tie event, I wouldn't go because I don't like those clothes. So right. <laughs> I think I don't dress for destination or the company. I always dress for how I feel that day and for myself. Beautiful. It doesn't matter where I'm going, what day it is. So Bye. does that answer that question? Yeah. <laughs> what about Saturday, yeah, Saturday morning? Same. Um, I've read a quote recently where because if, if I go out to get a coffee or I'm going out for brunch – it's not uncommon for me to be overdressed. And I read this. <laughs> I, there was a, I love that. There was a great quote that said, next time someone asks you why you're so overdressed, you should respond and say, why didn't you put more effort in? Or, you know, why are you so underdressed? And so I think, you know, if it's Sunday morning, I could be wearing a three-piece suit or I could be wearing, I don't know, a big oversized shirt and some ripped jeans it just depends how i wake up i think or like today your beautiful comm suit in lilac with gray tape on it yeah Yeah, i mean it's a vibe okay what about you chris what are you wearing um when i go black and black and black most of the time I'm trying to, my um, spiritual healer's like, you need to wear more color. I'm like, mate, no. just do, you work harder and we're all good. Cause I don't, but wearing black to a dinner party, but I'm always about a black tie event, a t-shirt, a black t-shirt, a black pair of pants and a ridiculous jacket or coat or something vibey. Wearing, going down to get a coffee, a pair of sports shorts and an oversized black t-shirt. And then I'll just throw the t-shirt on with a pair of black pants and a wicked shoe. I'm, I can't dress myself because I don't like dressing myself. I like dressing others. Yeah, I hate dressing myself. I've always had a body issue. Like I've always looked at my body going, you're like, you know, like a little, I've grown up around models and hot people and this. Mm, So when you look at yourself, I've just never dressed myself accordingly. Only recently being friends with my friend, Sarah, Sarah Lou, she dresses herself. Like she doesn't dress for anyone else but herself. So I'm now, she's taught me to do that. But yeah, it's weird, right? I can dress anyone in a room, but I'd rather rock up just being like, like understated one and that's probably why i'm so loud and crazy because i'm never the most amazingly dressed like watching Stuart today i was like oh vibe looks amazing i always get asked to do menswear styling yeah because people see how i dress myself and then think that that because i hate menswear styling like i well what if you saw it in the Stuart? you know well i can dress myself because i i don't know i i 
yeah, it just doesn't translate in the same way. And I guess that's kind I'm of always like, dressing like a Hawksburn mum. Like I've just got the flip collar, <laughs> a cap. Like it's vibe. I don't know what it is. It's like all I'm missing is a pearl neck, like and a Toscano's bag. Like I've literally actually got the Toscano's bag green. So it's Perfect. all good. But it's I this love weird it. thing. Like it's I love odd. it. Yeah. And I always the same thing for me. Like um someone described my style once as um, you know, she's somewhat understated. <laughs> and it's with all the amount of crazy concepts and things we've made and done, I haven't needed to bring my creativity out in my clothing so much because it comes out in my work. So I, I dress to a sort of a minimum acceptable standard that I kind of like. Um, yeah, so it, it's really interesting when, uh, you know, whether you express that creativity on your person or through your work or both, you know. It's it's fascinating. But it's it's true. Like I would consider myself I struggle to articulate what I feel and what I think. And so I wear vibrant clothes because they do some of the talking for me that Beautiful. I don't have to I love that. communicate. Mm, I love that. Okay. Favorite quote time. <laughs> Bring them on. Oh my god. Mine is ridiculous because I constantly use this reference and everyone laughs, but it's true. It's Countess Luanne de Lesseps from New York Housewives. It's her song Money Can't Buy Your Class, because it can't. If you've got no money or money, you, if you've got a style and a vibe, everyone always asks me, and that's the question I always get, like, can you dress me? I'm like, mate, if you've got an idea of how you are, you can dress yourself, but it's not any sort of money or any sort of wardrobe or extensive anything. Like, you know, money can't buy your class. That's what always I say, and it just shuts everyone up. So it's, that's it for me. I love it. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> end on that one with Chris Stewart. My favourite designer is Comme des Garçons. Most people wouldn't come as a surprise. So Ray Karakubo has some profound quotes, but actually I think Bill Cunningham summed it up in that fashion is the armour to survive the reality of everyday life. Straight to the point, right? Okay, so those quotes were just perfect. And thank you so much for being here today. This has been best day ever. What a great way to start the year. Um, thank you so much, guys, and we'll go and eat some food now. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.